Our national conversation about conversations about race is brought to you by Casper. Get $50 toward any mattress purchased by visiting www.casper.com forward slash race and using the promo code race. Before we start today's show, we want to ask you a small favor. Here at Panoply, we're trying to learn more about our podcast listeners. We want you to tell us about the podcast you enjoy and how often you listen to them. So we created a survey that takes just a couple of minutes to complete. If you fill it out, you'll help us to make great podcasts about the things you love and the things you didn't even know you loved. To fill out the survey, just go to panoply.fm slash survey. That's panoply.fm slash survey. Or you can click the link that's been provided in the show notes for this episode. Thanks. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to our national conversation about conversations about race, the bi-weekly multiracial podcast where we discuss the ways we can't talk, don't talk, would rather not talk, but intermittently, fitfully, embarrassingly do talk about culture, identity, politics, power, and privilege in our pre-post yet still very racial America. You could say all that or just call the show about race. I'm Raquel Cepeda, and joining me in the Panoply Studios in New York City are my co-host, Tanner Colby. What up, Tanner? Hello, Raquel. And while Baratunde is away solving the austerity crisis in Greece, we are really happy to welcome my mellow, my man, Jay Smooth. What up, Jay Smooth? Yes, indeed. What's going on? Thank you for taking the time, because I know today you... um, you're taping the Underground Railroad, which is the longest-running hip-hop show out there. Yes, indeed. Friday nights from right. 10 p.m. to midnight on WBAI 99.5 FM. We've been doing this since 1991. That is crazy. So we're like wow. the, the, the grumpy old hip-hop fans now, but we try to keep that in check. Wow, that's really, really crazy. So thanks for... I'm glad that we could work this out and you can join us in the studio. And uh, we hope to have that, you know, you not you don't regret coming in at the end of the segment. Oh, no, I'm, I'm sure that won't happen. I, I listen to every episode and wish I could jump in. I resisted coming in with a list of notes <laughs> from previous episode. episode. Yeah. Yeah. Since you listen to our show, you know how this how it works. And uh, we're going to start with the what's up with everybody and end it after the stuff that we're covering with uh, Yo Check This Out, where we share our tips and recommendations with our listeners. So what up? Uh, what up? I just turned in a book proposal. It is currently being discussed and debated and auctioned as we sit here in the studio and I'm checking my phone to see what's going to happen. What the hell, Tanner? I know. What the hell? I don't understand by, by next, how you do this. By next May, I'll have written four books in two years. I just don't understand. Like, like I, I really... Th- white people get all the work, Raquel. It's no, the, I know it's that. Easy. I know white people get all the work. That I know all too well. <laughs> but... How do you manage to crank out? I mean, you actually do the work that you're given. How right. do you manage to crank them out? So, Ghostwriting like- is a completely different animal from writing a book. 90% of your source material is right there in front of you. You're usually writing about someone's life where the beats and the climaxes and the struggles are, you know, it's, it's when you're writing your own book and it, it takes years and when you're writing someone else's book because you have all the material right there in front of you, it's a much faster process. Yo, it's just incredible. It's re- I'm in kind of kind of in awe of you. Well, I, I thank you. I can I now can't look at you directly in the face. <laughs> I'm gonna have to like look down because I'm like totally, totally, totally in awe. No, that's why I'm kind of winging it today because I was in meetings all day yesterday and and it's been a little crazy. So we're, wow, we're well, go- good luck with we're that. We're gonna see. Maybe I'll be better, less prepared. Yeah, well, good luck that's with that, I and I let us know what happens. Myself. Right. It is better just to you know just to Wing speak it. speak from the heart. Yeah. So what's up with you? Oh, man, I'm just so Jay happy Smooth. to finally be here with the cool kids. I always <laughs> promised my dad I would make this happen. Um, yeah, I don't, you know, I'm trying to experience as much of uh, all the summer music here in New York as I can. I just caught uh, George Clinton out in Brooklyn. Um, it was really nice to see him all cleaned up, uh, wearing a suit. Um, Get out of here. If you've read his biography, you know, he went through a lot of struggles yeah. with drugs and stuff. So yeah. To see him looking together and sharp was a lot of fun. And, uh, you know, li- listening to the podcast and hearing y'all always introduce yourself with the books is making me really want to figure out the book that I'll write. May- I might do to- How to Be Very Light-Skinned. So no, 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 no. You should say, no, 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 no. I have a title for you. I have a title for you. Actually, I'm black. <laughs> yes. Someone, yeah, someone suggested I should change my name to Actually Black, like Aloe Black, <laughs> like B-L-A-C-C. <laughs> That's funny. 
That's crazy. So what's up with me? Well, I just came back from Fort Lauderdale, Florida, where I was competing in the women's national golden gloves. <laughs> always beating always up on, on other people. <laughs> yeah, it was cool. It was fun. I won. I won the gold. I placed gold. Wow. Wait, and, so you're uh, the national golden glove champion yeah, of your weight class? Yeah, 141 masters. So that's kind of like, that's that kind of fed my ego a little bit. But yeah, it was fun. It was a lot of fun. Great. And I just came back. And actually, I want to congratulate the New York Metro team for doing so well out there. It's all women's. A tournament, and it was really you know cool to see and work out with some of the women that are actually on the road to the Olympics in 2016. Mm-hmm. I was like trying so hard. I actually have a bruised rib. I'm like trying to like so hard to like, keep up, and now I'm back here. All right to beat up on guys. some white fragility. <laughs> <laughs> to beat up, yeah. So yeah, speaking of uh, of beating up, we're gonna beat up on white fragility. <laughs> Talk about the Trump effect and the racial blind spots of Amy Schumer and other white comedians. So, and then we'll wrap this up with, you know, like I said before, yo, check this out, our tips and recommendations. So talking about, you know, beating up on... Uh, beating up on white people. Talking about beating up on white people. I actually just happened to have fought a white person, but it's just a coincidence. Just a coincidence. It's just a happy coincidence so that we can <laughs> flow into this first I segment. love it that it's a happy coincidence. <laughs> Is that a happy... Serendipity. It's serendipity, exactly. It's not a happy coincidence, but it just happened. White fragility is something that we've been meaning to talk about for a while. Right. White people have been forced into the racial conversation. Jose Antonio Vargas is doing an MTV documentary called White People. WNYC on the Brian Lehrer Show had a whole call-in show inviting white people to call in and talk about race. There's all these discussion groups going on in various schools. People are trying to pull white people into the racial conversation to deal with it. One of the biggest obstacles they're confronting is this idea of white fragility, which uh, Robin D'Angelo, an academic, first coined the phrase a few years ago. It's been bubbling up in the media recently. And basically that when white people are confronted with this issue, they crumble and can't deal with it and get defensive. They back away. All different manner of reactions depending on the temperament of the person who's being addressed. Jay and Raquel, what is? do you have a signal example from your life of encountering oh, white God, fragility? Oh, God, I have many. But I'll, I'll, I want to... Let's start it off. Man, start I, I, I wouldn't know how to pick out one example. It's you know, it's just such a persistent pattern of right. uh, even the mildest attempt to broach a discussion brings a very familiar sort of defensive behavior patterns to try to shut things down. And I, I think uh, the point that Robert D'Angelo makes that so much of our conversation is hung up on a good person, bad person dichotomy of race. I think. Well-meaning white people come into it feeling like this is the litmus test for whether I'm a good person. So any rhetorical misstep is going to mm-hmm. get my card taken away. Right. You know, for me, when I was reading her, her her paper was illuminating. And just reading about the subject and listening to uh, people call in on WNYC and just, you know, talk, talking to my own friends. But mm-hmm. I was wondering, like... Okay, in the new world sense of, the, uh, of, of history, right, um, in the Americas, encompassing the Caribbean, the Americas, North and South, I, like, I, we see how going through the transatlantic slave and indigenous slave grinder has affected communities of color. Mm-hmm. You see that there's something akin to post-traumatic stress syndrome that I see playing out in you know, um, self-loathing, skin bleaching, which I know happens every, you know, in a lot of other places. It comes out in you know, person of color on person of color crime. Mm-hmm. Black or brown, any variation of that, and also in just in in, in black and brown male masculinity, in this like over asserting your masculinity because you know black men, as you, you as you know, um, have always had their masculinity challenged and violated because right. of slavery, right? But where white men don't really have that, so I I see the connections, but mm-hmm. I realize that when it comes to the way white people also have post traumatic stress disorder from slavery, but it manifests differently. It manifests differently. It's more, it's, it, it, it manifests itself, I think, through white fragility and the inability to deal with race-based stress. Well, I mean, the way I frame it and look at it is the way we always talk about race is we talk about people of color as the victims of, of the oppression, and we talk about white people as either, if not the perpetrators, then the beneficiaries of the benefits of it. And that is certainly true if you frame the issue that way. In addition to looking at it like that, I also look at it from the point of view is that we are all products of the same system and like we all have symptoms and this is the white one like black people you're right they have this uh, internalized sense of inferiority and all these other issues that that they're dealing with and white people have this it's just a blind spot same way catholics can't talk about dad's drinking problem because (laughs) there's just it's a culture of oppression and not dealing with things and you know the oft heard refrain from people of color is why is the onus on us to deal with your 
inability to deal. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think I, it's always my nature to be sort of conflict avoidant and conciliatory. So I'm always looking for ways that we can speak to white people in a way that'll make them want to listen. But I think there's only so far you can go with that. And it's mm-hmm. unfair to expect people of color to always be the ones bending back over. I mean, there will sometimes be impatience from a black or brown person trying to explain something to the white person, then the white person will feel some awkwardness and fear because of that. Mm -hmm. But the uh, black or brown person has the impatience from having to explain this thing a thousand times and dealing with the same defensive behavior patterns, and they have the impatience of having dealt with the actual racism all their lives. So I think between those two, I feel like a little more onus should be on the white people to just deal with the awkwardness and work through it. Right. I agree with you. And it is 100% totally unfair that the onus falls on the people of color than the white people. But I don't see any other way around it. To, to go to my experience, because I was the white person uncomfortable dealing with race four or five years ago, um, I kind of like, I was smart enough to know what I didn't know. And I spent four years learning, reading, you know, history books and talking to people, doing research before I ever had to like step out and say one word in public. Because I was writing a book, I got paid to do that. Most people have jobs and children. They can't spend four years, you know, growing up in a community like I grew up in in Vestavia where they fly the Confederate flag is like growing up next to a lead paint factory. You know, there's just brain damage that goes along with it. And it takes a lot of rehab to get over the damage that was done by growing up in that environment. And so to me, like on Salon.com and, and you know, and sort of the, the outrage Internet uh, over these issues, like, can you believe white people did this? I'm like, yeah, I can. I can totally because that's the environment. They are products of that environment. And, you know, I just think that, you know, it's like a game of operation, you know, where you had to like pull the bone out very carefully. And if you hit the side and it made, and then you'd like lose points and lose the game. That's how it is dealing with white people. And there's, there's not a whole lot of way around that. Yeah. I mean, I think that is a pragmatic reality um, to some extent. But I also I feel like so I my most famous video is one named How to Tell Someone They Sound Racist, mm-hmm. where I advocate for uh, focusing on the words or the action, saying this thing is racist instead of saying you are racist to try and avoid those defensive mechanisms. But along with a lot of people saying that video has helped them, I've heard from many people that no matter how precisely or gently you phrase this, no matter how clear you are that I'm not saying you are racist, it'll go through their ears into their brain as, wait, you're saying I'm racist and I'm a bad person? And I think there's mm. there's just a commitment to seeing any discussion of racism as a referendum on my goodness and a sort of all or nothing, zero-sum game that until white people shift their understanding of what it is to be a good person, you know, the good people are all imperfect and we're all t- prone to having blind spots. We all need to do that work and do upkeep and maintenance. Right. Until that shift takes place, which is something we can't really help white people with. Like, it's going to be hard to really get the well, conversation I mean, done. Not yeah. even you guys helping. Like, when I'm alone in a room with all white people and the subject of whatever my book or my latest article comes up, like, there's fragility in the room with it when it's just white people in the room. I, 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 yeah, I noticed that. Yeah. I, I noticed that. I, I, I actually noticed that, that accidentally at your son's, from time to time. Your son's birthday party. Well, what, what was, happened at my son's birthday well, party? Well, I was the, Sasha and I, the my only husband people Sasha, of color. Uh, and were the only people of color. And for All some my other reason, black friends were out of town. So and, and, for some, and for some reason, it just gave me the giggles. I just could not stop laughing because to walk up into your house and then just see this all white room. And I was, you know, we're trying to talk to people and just start conversations. And when I brought up like, oh, yeah, race, people were like, eh, and I walked away. But in a larger, you know, in the larger American context, it's not really funny because it's very frustrating to have to be a person of color and deal with our own issues and deal with our own racism and deal with our racism and colorism within our own communities and stuff, our own problems, and then coddle, basically, you know, white people to try to join the conversation and actually be kind of more direct about it. When, when Lisa Bloom talked about it on Brian Lear's show, mm-hmm. her and Robin D'Angelo kind of both, the takeaway that I got was, you know, white people just got to start talking, not be, be, be afraid of sounding stupid or misspeaking, but just start talking about it in a more direct way. What didn't resonate with me with Lisa Bloom was that the conversation was very black American and white American, where right. Robin D'Angelo was more like, you know, white America with communities of color. Right. Well, the the example that I always give uh, whenever the subject comes up, I was at a party uh, when I was writing the advertising portion of my book, and I was there with this guy, Kwame, who is one of the five black people in advertising. 
And he and I were just having a frank conversation, probably about how there were no black people at the industry party or something. And this little blonde white girl was like, oh my God, you can't say that in front of Kwame. <laughs> and Kwame goes, yeah, you can. And she goes, yeah, really? And he goes, yeah, you, you can say whatever you want. And she said, oh, well, I, I guess I don't have anything to say. And she didn't, and that was, that was it. Uh, one thing my principal at my high school told me that they had some, you know, tolerance, diversity, discussion type things, but that what he really saw making the biggest difference was just lived experience. Mm-hmm. Was yeah. just putting people in the same room, letting the difficult moments happen, and just let people live rather than, let's talk about it. Yeah, and I, I feel like, especially in person, there are so many other levels of human exchange, there's so many other energies being shared and intangibles you pick up about each other's intent. Right. Um, that I think when you have that lived experience, and not that the internet's not real life, but in right. real flesh world life, yeah. I think you can make progress there that might be a little harder on Tumblr. Right. But you can't have a word conversation if the body language conversation is terrible. If like you're on a first date and it's not working, the conversation's going right. to even go downhill <laughs> from there because it's just that awkward space. And I've learned that the hard way doing these video blogs all these years that I, I could have all the words perfectly chosen and if my gesticulation and my facial expression don't match up with what I'm trying to convey, mm-hmm. people are not going to hear what I wanted them to hear. And I think when you're doing it right, that's why the videos connect in a different way than text would. But right. I, I mean, I think there's you got to be conscious of all the levels you're connecting. Whenever I'm occasionally on one of the cable news shows, people read a great deal into how much eye contact you made. Were you leaning towards or away from the other person? Mm-hmm. Which if you're there in the studio, there's just a thousand other stimuli making you look around. And right. So this is actually like this is a theater piece based on the idea of conversation. This yeah. is right. not a natural human exchange where people will still sort of project all sorts of things on it. You can't help that sometimes because I think people racism, race issues about identity, ethnicity are very painful for a lot of people. And mm-hmm. I and sometimes people grieve in different ways and people are very silent, people are very extroverted in that and very angry in that. And I think that's what, you know, why we hear right. why, why there's such a breach in communication. Right. And I think that's why I think it's healthy to have a variety of approaches. Like what I said in how to tell someone they sound racist is what works well for me. I think people should also be doing the opposite of that and just having the cathartic telling someone off saying, I think you're straight up racist. I think there's a place for that sometimes too. You know, you just, sometimes you just need to set the boundary of letting somebody know, I'm not gonna take this from you whether you get it or not. Different temperaments are gonna be reached by sort of different styles of communication. You know, I think it's good for us all, all right. to be trying whatever suits us. So what do you do when you meet somebody or you have a friend who's white and they're so comfortable because you made the space so comfortable and so safe for them? that they just start you know, saying the N-word, or how do you check that and yeah. not alienate them or scare them away? Uh, that's a good question. You know, that particular thing doesn't happen often. I don't know if it's, I, if it's because I only hang out with old heads. That's an interesting question, but I guess I would have to gently bring up, well, you're real comfortable saying that word? What's, uh, what's the situation with that? It happens more often for me in terms of an MC will be on the show and they'll be saying something misogynistic or anti-gay and I'll have to sort of slip in and gently say something about the language they're using. And I find that I expect some sort of puffing out their chest and getting mad, but they're usually almost always like, oh, I get it, I get it, I get what you're saying. Right. Putting it out to our listeners, if you are white, what have been your most difficult, fragile moments? If you are a person of color, what are some challenges you face dealing with wrestling with white fragility? And do you think that white fragility is just a fact of life that must be navigated? Or is it something that white people have to fix of their own before things can even begin to, to move forward? Let us know, showaboutrace at gmail.com. So in a moment, we're going to kick it over to Raquel to talk about her good personal friend, Donald Trump. But before that, here's a word from the people who pay for everything. Our national conversation about conversations about race is brought to you by Casper. Mattresses are crazy expensive. Uh, Way too expensive. With a child in daycare, just can't do it. Well, I think we have a solution to your problem. Casper mattresses are obsessively engineered at a shockingly fair price. It's $500 for a twin-size mattress and $950 for a king-size mattress. Compared to industry averages for mattresses, that's an outstanding price point. They have just the right sink, just the right bounce. 
two technologies come together in a Casper mattress, latex foam and memory foam. A Casper mattress provides better nights and brighter days. Another great thing about Casper is they have a risk-free trial and return policy. That means you can try sleeping on a Casper for 100 days with free delivery and painless returns. If a Casper mattress doesn't work for you, you can send it back for free. You can get $50 toward any mattress purchase and show your support for our show by visiting www.casper.com forward slash race and using the promo code race. That's casper.com forward slash race and the promo code is race. So last month, the Donald announced that he was throwing his name into the already crowded ring of Republican contenders, duking it out to become our next prez. And his wildly incoherent and quite frankly, in condescending speech, he made some crazy, zany, flagrant remarks about Mexicans. When Mexico sends its people, they're not sending their best. They're not sending you. They're not sending you. They're sending people that have lots of problems, and they're bringing those problems with us. They're bringing drugs. They're bringing crime. They're rapists. And some... I assume are good people, but I speak to border guards and they tell us what we're getting. And it only makes common sense. It only makes common sense. They're sending us not the right people. It's coming from more than Mexico. It's coming from all over South and Latin America and it's coming probably, probably from the Middle East. But we don't know because we have no protection and we have no competence. We don't know what's happening. And it's got to stop. And it's got to stop fast. After that stupid speech, folks came at him on Twitter and other social media outlets. He was fired from The Apprentice and was dropped by a growing list of former business associates. But while we were cracking jokes in 140 characters or less and writing tongue-in-cheek open letters thanking him for pissing or scaring Latinos into voting and whatnot, he's actually started to surge in the polls often either tying or slightly trailing behind Jeb Bush. Even one of the several poster boys for self-loathing in the race, Ted Cruz, has been totally man-crushing on Trump in public and reportedly rendezvousing with him in private. So the question is, guys, should we be sleeping on the Donald or is it just too early to start planning a self-deportation strategy? Well, he's not going to win. It's more, you know, I've listened to that speech and I've been reading what he's saying and I'm trying to find the right way to encapsulate it. And it's like the comment section from a Fox News article <laughs> took human form uh. <laughs> and decided to run for president. Um, so it's clear that he's not going to win, but he is going to force some very uncomfortable moments for the rest of the candidates should he make the debate, which it seems that he will. And this is just the culmination of what started in 1964 with Barry Goldwater. You know, Dwight Eisenhower... When Barry Goldwater and the other conservative candidates started stoking up the white anger, he said, if you ride this tiger, you're going to regret it because one day it's going to come back to bite you. And we thought Sarah Palin was the nadir of this coming back to bite. Um, you know, Nixon was very good at it when in, you know, appearing to be calm, just talking about law and order. What was brilliant about Nixon 68 campaign, of course, run by Roger Ailes, who now runs Fox News, is he didn't give any campaign speeches. He wasn't out with the crowds. He was only in small, intimate, televised settings where he could speak at this measured tone. And so it was chaos in the streets and student rebellion in Vietnam. And he came across as a very calm leader talking, let's lower our voices, law and order, respect each other. And of course, everyone in the suburbs knew what he was talking about. And then Reagan was sort of the, Reagan was sort of the apotheosis of that in using that racial coded language, talking just about the glory of white America and the welfare queens on the other side. And now the coded language has fallen away and we are seeing this laid bare for what it is and it's ugly. You know, it does remind me a lot of Barry Goldwater and his slogan reminded me of the approach that Trump is taking now. Like, I don't, we forgot what it was but it was something to the effect of you know you're thinking what he's saying basically. Right. Jay, you and I probably have the same introduction to uh, Donald Trump. I first heard him spewing hate around Central Park, around right? Central Park 5 That's yeah, and that's, I mean, that's always been his role. He's been, although he actually took more liberal stances on a lot of things before he figured out it was more effective trolling to be where he is now. But that's that's always been the role he's played. And it, so I'm torn. I mean, I definitely don't think he's going to win. I mean, people who are voting for him in these polls are voting for, I want to keep watching them on TV talking that shit. Like that's, mm -hmm. when, it, when it's election day, they're going to say, oh, okay, this has been fun, but let's get some grownups in the room. I don't so, know. I, I don't know. The Republican I, yeah, Party, yeah. like, I mean... 
The Republican uh, Party always goes that pale horse. <laughs> they you they always go back with uh, the Mitt Romney, the establishment. Right, yeah, right. They get this out of their system, and I, so I hate seeing him benefit from this trolling. I mean, that's he's not only saying that Mexican immigrants are rapists and murderers. He's saying that the Mexican government is conspiring to send all the rapists and murderers to the country, which is a remarkable achievement in trolling. So I hate. I hate seeing him get to benefit from that, but I feel like he's ripping the scab off of what the rest of the party would be doing. They would be appealing to these base instincts in subtler ways that would give them deniability. And Donald right. Trump is forcing everyone else, like Jeb Bush has to step up and say, well, I can't really rock with that, where he might have just tried to silently court that vote otherwise if Trump wasn't forcing his hand. Well, um, over the weekend, Trump held a border security rally in Arizona with his boy toy uh, Sheriff Joe Arpaio, oh, God. in what we'll likely call the most anti-immigrant event ever when we talk about this at the end of the year. Right. I'm sure it's going to be that. And um, his poll numbers surge even higher, and he was in New Hampshire before that. And when they were interviewing people, people were saying, you know, basically, Chris Christie sucks because he hugged Obama mm -hmm. after Sandy, right? They feel, feel betrayed about that, and that basically Donald Trump has balls. And I feel like if he continues at this pitch with the hatred, mm -hmm. he, I don't know, he may surprise us. I mean, I, I know it sounds a little absurd. Well, here's what's, here's what's happening. And to take an anecdote and project from that onto the entire nation, um, which I know I shouldn't do, but I'm going to. <laughs> um, you know, my parents are lifelong Republicans, lifelong Republican voters. Uh, Raquel just gave me the craziest <laughs> look. Um, but they're very much of the, we're nice people, but, you know, we, 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 believe in small government kind of thing. And my parents are, you know, moderate on social justice issues and all that sort of thing. My parents, they just turned off Fox News a couple of years ago. Not necessarily, not to do with Trump specifically, but like there is a segment of the Republican Party that are decent people who just happen to believe in small government and strong chamber of commerce who are increasingly turned off by this, but they are the silent wing of the Republican Party. They are not these crazy primary voting rabble rousers. And there's a fissure coming, a split or schism, whatever you want to call it, in the Republican Party where they, they got, like Eisenhower said, they started riding this tiger, and they're going to have to reckon with what they've created. Especially if they stay quiet. Actually, it was a Republican that first um, introduced me to CNN. And if it wasn't mm -hmm. for that Republican, I would have never met Baratunde. So she wanted to take a chance because she said, you know, while I voted for uh, uh, Palin and uh, McCain and I'm outnumbered here in Atlanta being a Republican, I have to kind of be, you know, underground. I believe that we need to have more diversity in voices mm -hmm. when it comes to Latino Americans. And what we see now is just two Republicans, Anna Navarro and some GOP strategists and nobody really else uh, representing for Latinos. So I agree with you. There are very there are many decent Republicans out there who I don't agree with politically, but they're complicit when they just stay quiet. And I feel like if he continues at this pitch, there's gonna he's gonna also incite violence because from what I've I saw just a few clips from mm -hmm. the over the weekend, it looked like they were just gonna find somebody who appeared to be Mexican and lynch him. It was like, it was at the, it, it reminds me a lot of Hitler. You you could take the audio of that Trump speech and put it over that Hitler flipping out meme, and it would fit perfectly. Yeah, and it, it is scary. Like I I feel like even though this will be a flash in the pan, I mean this is sort of. There's no gas left in he's the like tank. He's like a dime store Hitler. I mean, he's a pretty oh, shitty oh, oh, Hitler. Oh, yeah. I'm not, I'm not saying he would ever reach that level, but he could inspire some, some random group of drunk dudes to go attack somebody Yeah, in which is what I'm afraid of. Writers have been taking pro and con stances. And actually, Mark Hopperin from uh, Bloomberg gave him a solid B- for his uh, speech. An announcement speech, yeah. An announcement really? speech, which was like... But he I was, like, was he listening to what I was listening to? But he wasn't saying that it was a great speech. He yeah, was he's saying always it was looking at the horse race. He's so. looking as it's an effective. Trump represents the id of this very ugly part of this rump faction of white America that can't get on the program with the 21st right. century. Right, it's like the last gasp of that right. southern and strategy. That, like you can't go platinum, but you can put out a mixtape real quick. Right, and, have and a few that weeks of group, buzz. you know, that the loudness of that group actually makes me feel good about how increasingly powerless they will become. Still are, but will become in the future because they're getting louder, because they're getting angry. Exactly. They could be the silent majority in 68 because they just had the power. That's and right. now they're becoming louder and louder and angry and more desperate because I think legitimately they've been told something and that something has turned out not to be true. And so they are angry. 
And if I had been lied to my whole life and filled with these ideas and they turned out to be not true and I'd live my life according to that, I would be angry too. You know, you can see where their insecurity, you don't condone it, but you can empathize and understand with where their insecurity comes from because they were told a lie about what America was and that's not true. America is going to be a broad-based, far more inclusive, far more diverse society and Trump is tapping into that anger for his own. And what I, I find Trump's narcissism far more interesting than his racism. I mean, just as an example of something interesting about the American character, right? That's what's interesting to me is what's different this time around is he's getting hit in the pocketbook. He's losing all of these deals. He's losing millions of dollars. But the way that he gets to feed his ego right now seems to trump, no pun intended, that for him. Right. But you know what's crazy? He's paying for his own his own, he also uh, right? has yeah. a cushion, I suppose. Yeah, so right? he yeah. said, I mean, he, you know, one of the things he said in his, in his announcement speech was, I'm rich. It was like a Tourette's. <laughs> right. It was a Tourette's of like, I'm rich. I'm rich. It was like, it was like really freaking weird. And he said he was worth almost $9 billion, and now he's going to be, he says he's worth, as of what, a couple of days ago, $10 billion. So right. he's paying for his own. He's paying for his own um, campaign. But even even he's worth one billion, he can float. Yeah, the whole I'm thing. saying. Right. Yeah, he's floating his right. own campaign, and basically that's getting people excited. And then speaking of his egomaniacal kind of persona, uh, Jelani Cobb from the New Yorker likened him to, in a really excellent, funny article, likened him to a hip hop artist. He wrote, "Trump's combativeness and egomania may induce cringes in the GOP establishment." But this is precisely the behavior we expect, nay, demand, from hip-hop artists. He justifies his position with plenty of examples, including his proximity to beautiful women and, quote, brilliant means of monetizing male insecurity in a way that has long been painfully apparent within hip-hop culture. What do you make of that, Jay? Uh, yeah, I mean, he also, like 50 Cent, uh, crows about his wealth while repeatedly filing for bankruptcy. <laughs> <laughs> there's, <laughs> there's a number of similarities there. I mean, you know, I don't want to, I feel like that's unfair well, to the rappers of the world to go too far with that analogy but i, I see we're what being he's saying monolithic now. No. right he's pandering to like one aspect of hip-hop right like the, the aspect that that's mainstream not the kind that we probably love and still listen to right right yeah yeah just get that right the main thing you can say about trump is that he is now the definitive evidence that the 2016 election will not be the election when the gop gets over itself and reinvents itself for to speak to a new audience they're going to run this playbook one more time and it will likely not end well for them unless Hillary just totally tanks it. You never um, know. It's still early. It's still early. It's still early and uh, we'll be watching this one. I probably more closely than my co-hosts because I'm very, very interested in how in the polls he's actually polling and favorably with a small but but still a percentage of Latino voters. Wow. And wow. that's a whole get, other... And when I read that, there was 11% in one of the polls. There's so many polls I can't, like... I'm right. going to go back and put it on our uh, notes when I actually remember what article that was in. But one of the polls showed him at 11%. And that in itself is going to be something that I investigate because that deserves its own segment. The fact that there's even been a poll with him showing favorably with even a small percentage of Latino voters is scary and it's something that I'm going to be uh, watching closely as we get closer to the race wars, pun intended. So we want to hear from you. First of all, I'm as curious as my co-host on whether we have any Republicans aside from Tanner's parents listening to <laughs> our podcast. <laughs> and if so, what do you think? And if you're pro-Trump, why? And if you're a Republican that's embarrassed by Trump, tell us why and tell us who you're going to vote for and tell us what you think other Republicans need to do to kind of like nudge them out of the race and stop distracting your party from, you know, the real issues that are important to you. So we want to hear from you at showaboutrace at gmail.com. If you're pro, if you're pro Donald Trump, we promise that we will not say your name or where you live. I'm only kidding. I'm only kidding. No, um, we want to. Everybody's opinion counts, even if it's the wrong opinion. There you go. <laughs> so our third segment today, Amy Schumer is blowing up this year with her show in, Inside Amy Schumer on Comedy Central. She's got a hit movie this week uh, called Trainwreck. And a couple weeks ago, she was called out in The Guardian for her quote, blind spot on race. Some of the material from her monologues and stand-up shows has been called out. And it's part of a larger conversation that's been bubbling up recently. Jerry Seinfeld, Chris Rock, uh, Bill Maher, a lot of comedians talking about 
cell phones in comedy clubs and making it difficult to try material out that might be offensive and push buttons in wrong ways. And it's making it difficult for them to do their jobs. And our friend and co-host this week, Jay Smooth, did a video blog about the Amy Schumer episode. And so we wanted to expand on that, get some of his thoughts. What inspired you to do the post and, and what was the general, what was your take on the problem? Well, it was just really frustrating for me to watch because Amy Schumer, I, I wasn't ever much of a fan of her stand-up. I thought that was kind of blah, but I feel like she's really stepped her game up or mm-hmm. her writing staff has helped her step a game up on the show. Um, so to see her uh, go out of her way to have this really over-the-top defensive reaction to that Guardian piece, which, first of all, no one was really talking about that Guardian piece until she put the Streisand effect on it. Right. And... That piece, although I didn't agree with everything in the piece, it was far from a hatchet job. It said a lot of positive things about her and said she has had blind spots on certain issues. And so Amy Schumer played out what I feel like is sort of a persistent mix of white fragility and stand-up comic fragility, Mm -hmm. um, immediately accusing everyone of bringing out pitchforks and torches and trying to burn her house down and destroy her and lighten up. You got to let me do what I do and push boundaries, leave me alone, which I I just is is a classic case to me of the response to the criticism, making it about 10 times worse than it needed to be. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I agree with you. I feel like comedians need space to breathe. Yeah. And they need space to fall and space to fuck up. Yeah. And perfect their routines. Yeah. But when I read um, in the Guardian piece that she said, I used to date Latino guys. Now I prefer consensual. Um, it felt really inspired by Trump and not super clever. And I feel like yeah. if you're going mean, to make fun of race, you got it like. Right. And that's, it predates this yeah, current, it predates. No, it, it predates this current it, Trump yeah. infestation. And yeah. it's part of a sort of a conceit where she's portraying an obtuse white person and ostensibly she's making fun of the character's racism. But. That's the kind of thing that when it lands, it lands. But if it doesn't land, you're just giving yourself and the audience cover to laugh at a racist joke. And I think that one didn't land. Well, it didn't land because there's actually no stereotype of Latino men being any more rapey than other men. I don't. Yeah, and actually, well, now that. As a white person, I've never heard that stereotype, and I've heard a lot of them. Actually, you know, that stereotype does exist about Latino men. And not only where AC is from in South Texas, but in general, even in my own community uptown in New York City. So that does exist, and it's just not clever. When you talk about race in a way that's supposed to be funny, you kind of have to have an intellectual bent or know whether you're ready to, I think, jump in that arena. Like, for example, Jon Stewart. Um, who gets away with a lot of stuff because he is a white guy. So he doesn't offend as many people. And then um, uh, Chris Rock, uh, who does it superbly. Louis Dave C. Chappelle. K. Who? Louis C.K. Louis C.K. Yeah, and yeah. I mean, I think there's... You, you can either be an anything-goes comic who cultivates an anything-goes audience and just doesn't care, but there's another tradition that's really strong right now of comics like Jon Stewart who are doing smart, topical comedy that tries to be humane and think about these issues. And I think Amy Schumer has gone from sort of being an anything-goes performer in her stand-up days to mm-hmm. cultivating a reputation as this sort of feminist voice with her comedy on the show. And I think to take all the accolades and hype of your feminist expression on the show and then take an anything-goes stance when people disagree with other things is trying to, well, I t- t- trying to have I think part of the problem too. is it's, it's she's setting herself up as, oh, I'm being this progressive voice as a feminist, and then she did this really retrograde thing. Sarah Silverman could have gotten away with this joke. Yeah, I think so. Because that's her thing. Uh, You know, The Daily Show has become, oh, it's journalism, it's an institution, and people forgot that it's on after South Park, you know, where it's not supposed to be this revered thing. Um, In a world where Fox exists... I think it should be a revered thing. And and I think there's been a lot of value in it. Yeah, you're right. You're right that the you know it's not just the white fragility and defensiveness, but the stand-up fragility and defensiveness. And I think the way to go after comedians is with another comedy. If she's making this bad joke that doesn't really land because it's based on like kind of a weak stereotype, if you then come back at her with a better joke that reveals more of the truth, you're it's almost like the dozens to take something from yeah, yeah. You know, the page of your culture. Yeah, I mean that's that's interesting. I've heard what I thought was a really revealing. Thing from Louis C.K. I think it was on an Opie and Anthony, epi- Opie and Anthony episode where he said, uh, I'm not moved when someone tells me they're offended, but if someone lets me know that I'm wrong about something, then I care about that. And he to- talked about 
doing some sort of routine, maybe about cerebral palsy, some some sort of handicap. And he said a, a father of a kid who uh, has that handicap, or that disability, came to him and said, uh, you know, that's that's actually just not how it works. It's not really like that. And that that struck a different chord in him than just saying I'm offended and made him want to rethink it. So, I mean, right. I, don't, I don't know if that's I don't think there's a magic bullet that's always going to persuade everyone. But that may be a tack that Boing. works sometimes. But I, I also feel like there's a similar version. I mean, that stand up comic, that stand up fragility leads people to have this extreme defensiveness. I mean, there's always the specter being raised of a career being ruined or a life being ruined that when has that ever actually happened with a stand-up comic? I haven't seen... Fatty Arbuckle. Fat, we, I, well, <laughs> you, you, you're right about that. And maybe the closest one more recently is Michael, oh, Cr- Michael Richards. Michael Richards. Is that Kramer? Right, Kramer. Right. Richards, yeah. yeah. But other than that, and I don't think anyone's arguing that was undeserved. But I think he was probably imploding anyway. Right. That's I mean, yeah, his, he every, was on the way out. Yeah, there's there's always a generalized specter of, oh, my career is going to be ruined by this pushback. But what always happens in each case is there's a few weeks of pushback and Tosh.0 goes on being Tosh.0. There's actually a similar form of the same exchange you used to have in the club is happening on a broader scale where you find out where you're going a bit too far and you either adjust to that or you rock with your core audience and decide you don't care. But I, I think there's a sort of apocalyptic but even, feeling that comics right. have that isn't justified. The, that that um, Latino joke, mm-hmm. I even think with a core audience, I just think it would just it would, would fall flat. Oh, yeah, no, yeah, that was just a whack joke. That's just a whack. Yeah, I mean, yeah, she yeah, has yeah. many, but at the same time, you know, we do have to allow people to kind of like fall and get up, fall and get up when they're doing comedy because comedy, to me, I feel like comedy may be like the hardest gig to have in entertainment. It may, it may be the hardest most healing actually gig to at make best. people at its best to make people think and laugh and actually approach and talk about sensitive topics That's the, the law has too, actually yeah. come down on this side it was the case a few years ago from well, many years ago now because i'm old we're old uh it was friends <laughs> you're old not me there was there was, <laughs> there was a case a writer's assistant on friends uh sued for sexual harassment saying that these male writers used to sit around in the room and just say the worst kind of misogynist you know, things, and they ruled in the writer's favor, saying in that creative space you have to be able to say anything. And in the writer's room, you're in a room, you know, and when I write my books, I've written stuff that, thank God, the world will never see, you know, because a day later I wake up and I look at it and I'm like, eh, delete. But a stand-up <laughs> has to do that live and in front of an audience to see if it works and to test it. And so that's where they're falling into a bad space. Yeah, and I, I mean, I don't deny that's a real issue of... uh Everyone has a cell phone in the club now, and it's not the safe space, so to speak, that it once was. But I don't think most of the big blowups that we've seen have come from that sort of thing. It's almost always, as with Amy Schumer, something that they did on a televised show. True. Or with, say, Gilbert Gottfried making tsunami jokes. He went on Twitter and did that and acted as if he was in the club working on his material. Mm -hmm. And I think there's sort of a failure of comics to accept that you want it to be one way, but it's the other way. And you're, like, you're going to have to be able to adapt. Instead of adapting and uh, finding the ways you can work things through in social media, um, right. there's a sort of extreme, well, we're not going to allow any critique. And that's well, this sort what of... I think, like, what, I, what I think what is sad about what we, saw, what we saw here is you saw this, you know, mildly like, well, you know, I'm going to talk about Amy Schumer's privilege, da, 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 critique of her. And then she came back with this defensive, you know, I'm just, it's just a joke, get over it. And it was just sort of like weird and sad and to watch it play out. What I would have rather seen, Amy Schumer does a bad joke on the MTV Music Awards. Twitter swarms her with some hashtag meme joke that just totally obliterates her and shows up her folly for making this humor. And then next season on Amy Schumer, we see a really smart sketch yeah. about social media steps. respond. It's like diss tracks in which I think, she which steps I up think her game. historically, like this pushes people to step up their yeah. game. Just like right. uh, the anecdote someone shared in one of their pieces that the classic Seinfeld, not that there's anything wrong with that, came from people saying, you know, this is going to look homophobic if you don't throw something else in. So they sort of put that in against their will, and it became the thing that really made it click and immortalized it. So, I mean, I feel like if you want to be a performer who pushes boundaries, you can only do that if someone is letting you know where they think the boundaries are. That's true. You should be grateful. That's what's going to allow you to be great. Right. And actually, one of the markets that are most important to um, comedians, which is the universities are becoming uh, no-go zones because of PC comics. What do you make of that? Um, I mean, 
I'm puzzled by that because I'm not sure what which Seinfeld joke about his missing sock is sort of offending the, you know the missing sock <laughs> constituency at the school. Yeah, but they're talking about like Chris Rock and all these other people. Like people, like you need time to laugh and heal and and be able to you know, exorcise the stress of going to school. And I remember once I was at a university university in New England that's very, very, very well endowed, and somebody warned me, you know, they don't laugh. They want to know the answers of how to solve all the world's problems. And I was um, screening Bling, uh, Planet Rock, which is a documentary I made about hip-hop's obsession with diamonds and how that intersected itself in the war in Sierra Leone. Where and I brought uh, three rappers to Sierra Leone to see it firsthand, and there are moments in there that are funny, even mm-hmm. in in the midst of tragedy. And there's a moment, a couple of beats where every time, no matter what, I put them in there on purpose because people need like a beat to like laugh and like let's release. And every single screening I've had, people laugh at that one moment, and I was like, oh shit, they're not laughing at that. And when I came out, they were like, it was stone face. Everybody was young. Nobody found anything funny in anything. And I was asked, like, how to solve the world's problems. Like, you can't be real sometimes in, in, mm-hmm. in these schools. I don't doubt that's true sometimes, but that's what school is for, is for being at a stage of sorting these things out and figuring them out. Um, so, I mean, if that's if it has ebbed and flowed in a way that it's a little bit harder yeah, to but do they, certain types of comedy, I'm not sure that's the end of the world. People are being disinvited more now than ever. So you basically... You know, and it's, mm-hmm. and it's hurting people's pockets. So you basically go in there. You have to be super safe. You can't make any jokes. I find myself the same way. I'm very direct. Like, you know, if, if I'm booked for Latino History Month, which now it's less and less and less likely, I go in and I say why we should not have a Latino History Month, mm-hmm. why you shouldn't mm-hmm. look at everybody in, a, in one big, you know, large group. Right. But then people are like oh, offended. And even some of the Latinos are like, oh, gosh, when she leaves, what am I going to have to deal with the other students? Right. So it, but, it's just becoming too much of a, point, space, a safe space. Right. But to Jay's point about how if you want to be a boundary pushing comedian, you should be thankful for the people who are trying to show you where the boundaries are. I want to see a comedian go to a college campus and do a show about nothing but the oversensitivity of college campuses. They'll tackle but him, that right? Would what be do you think? A, a, that would be know. the I ballsiest, mean, that, most legendary thing. I'd love to see that, depending on who did it. But I mean, I'm reluctant to sort of assess this in a generalized way instead of looking at specific cases and knowing oh, what the joke was. Because I feel like a lot of these are, uh, you used to be able to comic who was in an insular space talking to your core audience, and you could just say some whack, ugly shit and get away with it. And I think it, a lot of this is just that it's harder to do that. I think to some extent there, you know, people can be doctrinaire and strident when they're going to college. I don't doubt that as well, mm-hmm. but I, I've, I'm not sure I agree about the proportionality of that. I feel like comics have been able to been extremely comfortable and uh, they've gone from no accountability to some accountability and they're figuring out what to do with that. I don't know if Richard Pryor or Eddie Murphy at his best or George Carlin, or any of those Oh, Eddie Murphy couldn't do half his set today. Yeah, oh, today. Yeah. No. All, the, and, and all the gay I, stuff? And yeah, I no. think that's a good thing. I think he, I wish he got more pushback on that back then. But then again, you have like shows like Good Times and The Jeffersons and, and Archie Bunker's place. And Archie Bunker said some really foul shit. Yeah, he but joined the, the Clanton time, in one episode. He joined the Clanton, exactly. But, Although he, he dissed them at the end. Right. But they created spaces that we can actually explore and challenge ourselves and and laugh and at the same time be uncomfortable with issues around race and that's i think that's missing from today from the, from the conversation fortunately we have it here <laughs> and seen if you want to share a racist joke try out some new material or comment on any of the episodes agree or disagree just email us um we're at showaboutrace at gmail.com you can find us on facebook and on twitter at showaboutrace And uh, we look forward to reading your feedback and discussing some of it in next week's B-Side. And finally today, yo, check this out. Our recommendations, movies, books, or whatever, concerts, anything that you think our listeners might benefit from. Uh, Two things. Um, I finally had a little bit of free time to check some things out. A lot of the stuff has been out there for a while, but I just got around to it. The Nina Simone documentary on Netflix, What Happened Miss Simone, is excellent. So check that out. And also, I've, it's been on my new uh, bed stand for a while, uh, The Other Wes Moore by Wes Moore, about a young man from Baltimore who grew up to go to Oxford, achieve great things, and at the same time he graduated from high school. Another young man named Wes Moore went to prison um, and for a wife in prison, and it was about how their lives diverged and how their lives could have been interchangeable. It's a fascinating look at 
short world we talk about you know oh why isn't everyone making it why are these other people falling behind it's a good book jay do you have any recommendations oh i have a a long-term slightly self-serving recommendation uh my good friend dan charnas uh wrote a book named the big payback about the evolution of the music industry and uh it's now being made into a television show for vh1 named the breaks that's going to sort of take you inside around 1990 when hip-hop was sort of becoming assimilated and brought into the mainstream, um, which won't be out until December, but I'm really looking forward to seeing it. They have DJ Premier doing the music, a bunch of really good, authentic people. And if you watch closely in the scene in D&D Studios, you'll see a, a cameo by someone playing the sound engineer that you might want to look out for. So I'd recommend looking out for VH1's The Breaks. So, okay, my recommendation is a documentary on Netflix that I just saw recently called Little White Lie, directed by Lacey Schwartz, about a girl, a young lady who is um, part black and didn't find out about it, even though she was suspicious about it, until uh, she was went to college. Um, and it was really freaking kind of mind-blowing to watch and to hear her talk about her identity and how she found out that her father was not really her father, but a brother from Brooklyn. It's on Netflix, and uh, and you can watch it anytime. It's amazing. So that's all, folks. Our producer today is AC Valdez. Our research assistant and tech maven is Cody Carvel. Thanks also to Laura Mayer and Andy Bowers of Panoply. You can see its entire roster of captivating, compulsively listenable podcasts at iTunes.com forward slash Panoply. You can find links to the things we've discussed today on our website, showaboutrace.com. You can follow along with the conversation or join it yourself on Facebook or Twitter at showaboutrace. Or you can email us directly at showaboutrace at gmail.com, now accepting and encouraging voice memos. Check back in two weeks for the B-side of today's episode to hear your thoughts on these topics. That's it for now, and thanks so much for joining our national conversation about conversations about race. On behalf of Baratunde, Jay, and Tanner, I'm Raquel Cepeda, and we won't stop until racism is over.